0: Hey, it's Libby Denkman, the host of SoundSide, and today is Giving Tuesday, a global day of giving back. If you value KUOW and the time you spend listening to us, please consider supporting SoundSide and KUOW. All Giving Tuesday gifts will be generously doubled by the Rainier Institute and Foundation, up to $150,000. So it's a great time to give. You're going to double your impact. There's a link in the show notes to donate, and thank you. You're listening to Soundside. I'm Libby Denkman. For 90s kids, the Olsen twins were the dominant force in twin fiction. You gave me your coat. Take it back. Over the years, other generations have been fascinated by the Doublemint twins. A double pleasure for Doublemint Gum. Or Haley Mills in the Parent Trap. Don't you find it peculiar that we both look so much alike and have the same birthday? She's of course so there were the creepy twins from The Shining, Luke and Leia from Star Wars, the Weasleys of Harry Potter fame, Jamie and Cersei from Game of Thrones, not to mention twins in so many beer commercials. With the twins. <coughs> ah! no! And admittedly, I do have a particular interest in twins. I am one. Shout out to the person I shared a womb with, Gillian Denkman. But why are twins stuck so firmly in our consciousness? Helena DeBress says it comes down to something called the twin mystique. DeBress is an identical twin and an associate professor of philosophy at Wellesley College. Her latest book is called How to Be Multiple, The Philosophy of Twins, and her twin sister provided the illustrations. Hi, Helena. Thanks so much for being here today.
1: Hi, thanks, Libby. It's great to be here.
0: I got to ask before we get going here, you worked on the book with your sister. If I did the same with my twin sister, we would have fought. (laughs) (laughs) Do you two have that kind of working relationship or what is that relationship like?
1: It was pretty functional. There was this moment uh, that my sister reminded me of recently about a year ago when we were screaming at each other in a taxi cab and neither of us can remember what it was about. It was to do with the book. I think we blocked it out. So yes, there was a moment or two where tensions arose. (laughs) Most of the time we work really well together. You know, we've been doing it since we were kids here. We just, it's a sort of like slipping back into a childhood mode of working on projects. So it was super fun.
0: Yeah, yeah. I this, The screaming at each other in a taxi cab, most relatable thing I've heard so far today. So you're a philosophy professor who studies personal narrative and also political philosophy. Why did you want to write about twins? Well, part
1: of it actually was that I really like the style of book. So I love books that do something theoretical, whether it's philosophy or some other kind of academic or intellectual field and mix it with personal narrative. I just really like learning about things through the lens of someone's personal experience. So the kind of writing I like to do, and this is a really natural topic for that treatment because being a twin and being a philosopher are both really essential parts of my life. Um, And they're a natural fit. You know, I, I think as I try and say in the book, almost every question you can ask about twins has some sort of existential or metaphysical thing hanging around in the background twins are just really philosophically trippy mm-hmm. so it was a natural pairing i think
0: i want to start out with something that you shared at the end of the book and it was about this story from your childhood when you and julia won a bunch of humanities prizes in school and this made the news and you say that you know if you were to achieve these accomplishments as a solo student nobody probably would have noticed or cared. But it was newsworthy because you were twins. And you quote a therapist who calls this the twin mystique. Why are twins such an object of fascination for singletons? Because I've encountered this growing up, you know, my whole life, people want to ask so many questions about the experience. What is behind the twin mystique?
1: Yeah, it's a real thing. It's like we're many celebrities, especially when we're young, non-identical twins too. It's like these two kids in the same family, everyone knows they're twins. It's a big deal. Part of it is just our rarity. I guess there are more non-identical twins around these days than there used to be because of IVF and rising maternal pregnancy, but they're still pretty rare and identical twins are super rare. Uh, So it is that, but also I think twins are like, are, as we were just saying before, they're a natural kind of hook for a bunch of questions about human life in general. So questions about free will, about love, about personal identity. So I think people are fascinated because we're just kind of cute and unusual and trippy, but also because we raise these really big questions just by standing there. So I do think it's the philosophical aspects that are driving a lot of that fascination.
0: Yeah, questions about nature and nurture and identity, all of that is all tied up in just the fact of twins. Um, And stories about them are used in many cultures throughout history, as you write about stories and parables, Castor and Pollux, Hercules and Iphicles, Romulus and Remus. What is the narrative power of twins? Why do they recur so often in myth? Part
1: of what's useful about us is that we um, we can be used as figures, as sort of stand-ins for a whole range of different binaries, right? Twins, sometimes they're treated identical, but often they're polarized. So one twin will be like the good twin and one's the evil twin, or one's like the nerd and one's the athlete, or one's like the hot twin and the other's like the frigid twin. So you can use twins narratively to explore a whole range of different contrasts or so different ways of living or being. So they're just really useful for getting at um, some of these questions. They're also like easily used for comic purposes. You know, that whole switcheroo thing, twin switching places, identity confusion is really ideal for like
0: theatrical treatments. The Haley Mills, you know, parent trap situation classic. It's my favorite movie. Love it. Love it. Um, (laughs) But also
1: horror. Twins are often in horror movies there. I think that genre really reveals that this fascination with twins is also, it's not totally benign, right? I think that singletons often find twins to be not just like interesting, but creepy. And that attitude, I think really says more about singleton anxieties about personal identity and love. Than it does about the actual experience of
0: twinhood. So there's a lot of projection going on. Mm. You talk about those binaries that people sort of slot twins into. So you have the outgoing twin, the introverted twin. Sometimes it's the evil twin. That was always the joke growing up which one of you is the evil twin? Were uh, you the evil twin? I always thought it was me. <laughs> I did. I would joke and say it was my sister, but secretly I deeply thought it was probably me. I felt like I was maybe the one with more ulterior motives most of the time. You know, or there's the narcissist and the more empathetic twin. I do bristle at those tropes in literature and in pop culture, but at the same time, I do feel like my identity was shaped in a complementary way to my twin. I mean, growing up, I was the outgoing twin, and she was the more introverted twin. She's artistic. I was more of the academic person. There was also the competition lens. We were pitted against each other often. So is it just literary tropes that shape that concept of twins, or is there a basis in reality behind that? <laughs> yeah, It's a tricky question. So the first chapter of the book is called, Which One Are
1: You? is talking about this question. And I I canvass a bunch of different answers to try and get clear on why it is that we do this to twins. And also I think by extension, why we do it to other humans. You know, you don't have to be a twin to be contrasted to your sibling in a really dramatic way, or even in a romantic relationship, people take up certain roles. So why do we do this? It's clearly a really unsubtle way of treating humans, right? No one can be cleanly positioned at the end of a binary like that. I do think in the case of twins, part of it is really just a kind of panic move. You know, parents bring these infants home. They can't tell their own children apart in the case of identical twins. So they need to find some way to distinguish them. And I think there's a kind of overcorrection. It's like, oh, we're going to decide maybe randomly or maybe on a little bit of a clue that this is the quiet one. And then the quiet one takes that up and starts kind of acting into that role. And it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. So sometimes I think it's
0: something like that. Yeah. It's being reinforced by your environment and by the people around you, because it's easier to consider people in those in those categories.
1: Yeah, totally. And then I think because there are these narrative treatments out there in pop culture and film and literature and myth, people will use those sort of standing portrayals of twins sort of as a a model or a template for twins they come across in real life. So there's a feedback loop with the culture as well.
0: I'd love to hear you talk about the ways that your seminal twin in literature growing up, the the Sweet Valley High twin pairing, how did that shape your concept of twins? And what did that mean to you and your sister growing up? Did you read those? I I read a few. Yeah, I was more the like Olsen twins generation. So night I was more of a 90s kid, but I have read some Sweet Valley High, yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. It was big in the eighties. So my sister and I read them and we were sort of, it was a feature of our sort of like celebrity status that we were twins. Cause everyone was reading those books and was in love with <laughs> Elizabeth and Jessica. So I got identified with Elizabeth, who was the writer, you know, she was sort of, she would wear like cashmere sweaters. She's like just a goody two shoes, really a little bit moralistic. And then Jessica was this wild child, you know, like just <laughs> seducing everyone in the high school and wearing like You know, distressed denim jackets and just being absolutely awful. But everyone loved Jessica. Everyone wanted to be Jessica. But I just knew because I guess I'd been told this story from early on. There's no way I was Jessica that was going to be my sister, even though we're both like 10 year olds and neither of us is seducing, you know, men across our high school campus. We're like 10. So, yeah, that was one of these instances of something out in the world. I think reinforcing an existing difference and maybe magnifying it. So yeah, we idealized them, we wanted to grow into them. Maybe we did, you know, I'm a writer
0: now. Did your sister become a temptress? <laughs> possibly discussed that on the radio. Maybe a little, <laughs> little more than I, there are <laughs> I could tell. I mean, we talk about these binaries that, that twins are split into that we just have discussed, but twins also have the condition of being considered one person in many venues. Even my friends growing up would have a nickname for my sister and I as though we were one person and referred to as one entity. What was your experience with that growing up? And then how do you feel about it?
1: Yeah, so we definitely did have that um, done to us. You know, it's like people will give twins a single birthday present to share. They'll refer to us as the twins, not by our own names, You know, and we're assumed to kind of sub in for each other in a bunch of roles. Like I talked to this mother of twins who said, when when her kids were young, one of them fell over in the woods, their school friend came running up and just said, where's the other one? As if this one had kind of like, you know, been used up and there's a replacement right there. That was the kind of attitude we would have. So I certainly experienced it. And I used to really resist it. I didn't, I was like, of course, we're not the same person. You know, I don't feel it when someone like steps on her foot. You know, I don't know what's going on in her mind all the time. We have separate bodies. So I used to be irritated by it. But I've come around to thinking that there's something true about it. Twins aren't the same person, but they can kind of function as a single person in some special ways. So yeah, I talk in the book about how twins can share a mind in a certain sense, how they can be a plural agent, like act jointly. So yeah, I think there's more to it than I initially
0: thought. The concept of that is so creepy to me, the idea that we would be one entity, but then I think of the ways... For example, my sister and I share memories and we're not sure which person it occurred to. And so, in fact, there are ways in which, you know, we'll have the same song stuck in our head and we haven't seen each other for weeks. And then we'll sort of both sing it at the same time. You know, there are ways in which these things sort of overlap and start to feel like, oh, we do operate sometimes when we're together a lot in the world like one entity. What does that tell you about identity and individuality, you know, when you consider the way that twins operate? Well, I think a lot of the time the reaction people have to that, including
1: twins, but definitely singletons, is to be creeped out by it and kind of, yeah, criticize it, pathologize it. You know, it's like everyone has to be distinct individuals, you know, boundaries, we're all screaming boundaries.
0: (laughs) Well, and that's an American value, right? The idea of individualism is that's kind of a core to our society,
1: Yeah. So we all have this attachment to the ideal human life as being one of like discrete individuals, you know, interacting, having relationships, but basically having these firm mental, physical, and emotional boundaries that can't be crossed. And it's actually a relatively recent innovation in human culture to think of humans that way. You know, we're all deeply social beings um, and in many cultures and for many, you know, centuries, those boundaries weren't policed as much, and it wasn't thought to be somehow unhealthy, to have those experiences of merger. So I think one of the main lessons that twins can give to singletons is to demonstrate how you can be very, very closely connected to someone and nonetheless function as a perfectly, you know, healthy, ethical human. Because when when you think about the twin case, you can see the same thing happening with singletons, right? Mothers and their infants or parents in general and their infants can often feel merged. Romantic couples talk about, you know, being one person, like two halves of the same thing. It's a, it's a common experience to have when you're closely connected to someone. And I, I think that we shouldn't be pathologizing it the way that we kind of reflex do.
0: Yeah, but so often it is. I mean, I think that this veers into your discussion of um, queerness and twinhood, and the way that in pop culture, I mean, you know, Edgar Allan Poe and the House of Usher, uh, you know, up to Game of Thrones and Jamie and Cersei the idea of a too close twin relationship is pathologized. And, you know, oftentimes it kind of veers into a concept of queerness. And yet, is it really about that? Or is it about pathologizing just a relationship that doesn't fit into our concept of, you know, romantic, cisgender, heteronormative couples being the center of society? Yeah,
1: totally. So I, I have this sense, I didn't really think about this until I started writing the book, but I was looking at all this material on twins, my sister and I are both queer, and it just I just noticed these parallels with the way that twins were being written about or talked about, and the way that queer couples are written and talked about there are some similarities, you know, queer couples are usually of the same gender. um, And, uh, you know, twins often are. So you have an example of an adult couple that doesn't look like a kind of heteronormative pairing, right? Same gender. But what's distinctive about twins, as opposed to queer couples, is that it's a platonic relationship, right? It's like a close twinship is putting this like non-romantic connection at the very heart of the two twins lives. And I think we're uncomfortable with that because we have, again, the sort of standard vision of the healthy way to be as an adult, which is to be in the single enduring sexual romantic partnership, usually with someone of the opposite gender. So if you don't fit that model, you're doing something deviant um, and it needs to be policed. So I think these stories are a kind of, yeah, narrative cultural policing of what's really um, a perfectly healthy and, and valuable
0: relationship. You talk about how twinhood is sort of idealized when you're children and when you share a language or you have just sort of the cuteness of them dressing together as little kids. But then once they become adults and still have a close relationship, people find it creepy and weird and they, they portray it so in pop culture.
1: Yeah, people, you know, you're supposed to grow out of being a twin, which is impossible. Like, <laughs> you know, it's it's seen as a sort of immaturity to, to not move beyond it. Twins are kind of presented as being sort of irresponsible, not taking up their adult responsibilities. You know, there's something somehow wrong about them. They're psychologically messed up. They're likely to run into really deep uh, mental health problems when actually there's some evidence that twins are mentally healthier than singletons. Tend to you know to have lower rates of suicidal ideation and other kinds of mental illness. So there's no evidence out there for it. It really is a kind of ideologically driven take.
0: Hmm. Your story of twinhood and your examination of twinhood uh, through a philosophical lens, it intersects with feminism, sexuality, and then also disability and and health issues. You write about the ways that your sister and you share physical condition, medical condition, but it plays out differently in your lives. How so? So, twins are kind of anatomically odd, or <laughs>
1: their bodies are odd. In the standard case, it's just there's two of them when there should be one. That's a weird way to be in a body, to have a kind of copy out there. In the case of conjoined twins, you know, you've got two people inside a single body. So, that's also odd. Uh, my sister and I had a um, disability, we have one. Now too, obviously growing up, that involves our skeletons being more fragile than most people's are. So we had a lot of fractures. And uh, what I talk about in that chapter is kind of the the parallel between being in a kind of weird body for disability reasons and also a freakish body for twin reasons. (laughs) Those two things uh, were there in our childhood. My sister and I have diverged a bit since then. She's had um, more complications with her spine in particular in later life. So our bodies look quite different now. But we have this shared sense of being somehow like abnormal, like outside the norm. You can see it, I think, as a, you know, obviously a source of difficulty and challenge in life. But both of us have experienced it as in some ways being empowering. It's like once you've been classed as different in a couple of ways from a young age, you start becoming more comfortable with being weird and other weirdnesses about you no longer seem uh, like (laughs) things you need to be ashamed of. That parallel is there and it's been really
0: important for both of our senses of self. So we've discussed how in this book, you sort of land somewhere in between the two ideas that twins are discrete individuals and then also that twins can operate as somewhat of a single entity. But you write that, I wanna quote you here, when people imply that twins are somehow one person, What they often seem to mean is that twins are less than one person. Neither of them achieves full personhood by virtue of their overly close enmeshment with each other. Can you talk a little bit more about how that plays out? People are
1: always trying to ensure that twins do this, like stand fulfill the standard social script of of diverging, right? So there's a lot of subtle policing of twin behavior. You know, if like if you're still living next door to your twin when you're an adult, if you're still occasionally wearing the same outfits, you know, if you're spending as much time with your twin as you do with your spouse, all that stuff, so you're just giving messages all the time that that's not okay. So it's, a, a similar, it's just a kind of a, a symptom of that general habit we have of trying to press people who fall outside the norm into the main line. So it's not that people will necessarily say it directly, but you'll feel it. You'll just feel there's a sort of like, oh, if you mention something that feels odd to a singleton and you will often adjust to accommodate that sometimes it's also explicit. So there's a lot of advice in parenting manuals for twins about, you know, what to do with them, you know, whether they should be in separate classrooms or whether they should be, you know, have forced, uh, be forced into different friends circles and so on. There's a lot of anxiety about that. So some of it is actually like really direct
0: instructions to parents to try and save their twins from this terrible fate. I never know what to say when people ask me, because anytime they find out if they're a parent of twins, they say, what did you do? Did you do separate classrooms? Did you have different lives? We did a little of both throughout our childhood. So, I mean, how do you respond when somebody asks you, what are the ways to raise twins right?
1: Yeah, well, part of my problem is I don't have kids. I have two cats, you know, so I feel like... Yeah, me either. I have a dog. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not
0: qualified.
1: (laughs) I put my cats in separate classrooms. They're both tabbies. They have matching outfits. I don't know. Like, <laughs> I just feel like really you know, the twins should take the lead. Like some of them will want to be closer than others. That's fine. Some of them will want to be sort of more like your standard siblings who have more independent lives. That's also fine. I really, I just want to trust the twins to work it out themselves rather than have this, you know, this vision enforced on them of what the ideal way to relate would be. I mean, mm-hmm. that's my general view about relationships, but I, I I don't think these people, parents are, you know, they're concerned that like it comes from a good place. But I really think that um, the fear is massively like outsized and doesn't reflect the reality.
0: Yeah, there's this fear of codependence that I get from these parents who ask me questions like that, which, you know, reading your book, it feels like it's way overblown and it's tied up with so many other types of expectations that we project on people and on society, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I was recently doing this book event, uh, several pairs of twins turned up, which I love. um, And a pair of them asked a question in tandem, like they were alternating words. They looked super similar. They're like maybe in their thirties. They were relatively far along um, and they were talking, you know, as one. And I just, I love it. I don't have, I just have a wholly positive reaction to that. I think it's wonderful. It is deviant. It's kind of brave to do that in public, given that people think it's weird. But yeah, I'm just, <laughs> I guess I'm a fan of weirdness in all its forms these days. You know, um, I just, I, I really resist this idea that there's one single way to be. When's yeah. um, just one example of society really instructing you very early on and how you should conduct your sense of self and your relations? Just no, no.
0: Helena de is the author of How to Be Multiple along with her sister Julia, her twin sister Julia, who did the uh, illustrations on the book. Thank you so much, Helena, for this conversation. And it's fun to get to talk to another twin about your experience with this whole crazy thing and your academic research into it. Thank you. Thank you. I loved it. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to Soundside. And hey, this show is only possible because listeners support us. If you are able to give right now, check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 949 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m., Monday through Thursday, or anytime online at KUOW.org.